from two Enneagram map makers charting the unexplored interior landscape of the ego with Chris Hewitt. So welcome back to Enneagram Map Makers. Um, today's episode is is going to um, knock you over. I have no idea how I got Helen Palmer to agree to record this, but uh, I shot her a note. I was, was sitting... Um, at a little Benedictine monastery in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, thinking about this show and, of course, thought it wouldn't be complete without Helen's voice and, and contribution. Um, so I, I, I composed a little email. I, I sent out a pretty please ask, and, and literally within days, um, she had responded, and she responded with such generous um, and, and kind willingness to engage this What's incredible is Helen really being one of the ovarial leaders of this entire movement, one of the, the founding directors of the International Enneagram Association, really the, the grandmother of, of type descriptions and the grandmother of all relationship books that have come out over, over the past 20 and 30 years, is that Helen's actually never recorded a podcast before. And so when, when Corey, the, the producer here, um, was was working with her to to, to find a, a location for her to record. Um, she so um, honestly and innocently asked him what what she needed to wear. And I, I love this about her. I, I love this kind of how do I say this 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 the the purity of her not feeling as if she's needed to play the game, jump through the hoops, like throw herself at at the hustle. That over the years, Helen is 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 just said yes to the person in front of her that over the years Helen has just said yes to, to the work that she's been asked to, to, to contribute and over the years that Helen has continued to say yes to herself so if you've been around Helen you 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 know this she's she's spent a considerable amount of time prioritizing this this hard undramatic work of cultivating an inner witness this this part of herself that that she learns to listen to this part of herself that that she trusts and this part of herself that allows for her to offer discernment. This episode and this conversation in particular will stand out, I, I think, from everyone on on this season. Because as I, I, I begin to ask Helen a little bit about how she came into this tradition and, and what it meant for her and, and what it began to do for her, she really went inward. You You can kind of energetically experience this in the conversation where, where she kind of goes down and she begins to remember and 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 you'll note this she she shares a few things in this that she's never shared publicly and and somehow at this point in her life where she feels like these are important things to unpack it, it really was sacred and so more than any of these other conversations i i, I just had this sense like I need to get out of the way. Um, there's there's not a lot here that I need to do to, to guide or, or shape the flow of this conversation, but but Helen really has something that needs to be shared and, and we really need to, in reverence and respect, honor that, listen to that. And, and so I um, really want you to sort of allow this conversation to wash over you. I, I really want you to sort of sit with this as if it's a meditation because in fact part of this discussion Helen does guide us in in a mindfulness practice but what you'll see and what you experience when you're with her is is that's how she is she experiences all of life and and the the mindful present moment she sees in, in all things what is spiritual and and she holds all of this with a kind of childlike mystery and, and a curiosity that has allowed her to continue to be a learner and a lifelong learner at that. One of the things that I love about Helen is that she's um, been honest with, with her intuitive gifts and, and, and she's kind of suffered what's been misunderstood about those. In, in Father Richard's book, he offers some real compassionate understanding and affirmation of Helen's gifts that that at different points in history she would have been sidelined or marginalized or or even worse based on these things that generally and naturally come to her 
And so as a seer, Helen has a unique perspective on the world. And, and I think when she came across the Enneagram, it just made perfect sense. It translated some of those intuitive gifts that, that she might not have had languaging for or a framework to work with. And so here's my conversation with Helen. Like I said, I, I imagine that you'll find this almost a meditation. And so relax into this and, and let yourself be guided by her winsome and gentle words. Let yourself experience the invitation to go inward and really may you be changed from this, from this exchange. So Helen, thank you so much for, for joining me and thanks so much for, for making time for this conversation. It's, uh, it's remarkable that actually in, in, in the way of, of, of you as the queen of the modern Enneagram that you would, would make time for this. Well, I'm very pleased to be here actually. And I realize there's a pretty big millennium divide between me at 82 and uh, the average person coming in on the Enneagram right from the beginning and learning about their type. So, uh, yeah. you know, I'm hoping uh, that, that uh, my students, many of whom you've interviewed, th those are my students, were my students, that they uh, realize what a contribution they're making and how tough it can be to move into mainstream. I'm very pleased with the roster of people that you picked because I know them all. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I um, when I when I set out to 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 put together the hit list for the guests for this this podcast season, um, on one hand, you can imagine I was a little nervous. Like, there's so many people that 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 should be included. Um, and what I ended up trying to do here was was simply to include folks who've been my teachers folks who've been my conversation partners yeah. and so when i sent the the invites out to the to the 10 names i actually was crossing my fingers hoping at least four or five of them would say yes and within 72 hours everyone was like sure let's do this and so i'm i'm overwhelmed and and really like i said overwhelmed to have you so thank you thank you so much my pleasure so to get started, could you tell everybody out there who's listening just a little bit about yourself, where you're at, what's keeping you busy these days? Well, I've been busy since uh, I met the Enneagram. It's been kind of nonstop. But uh, I came upon the Enneagram in a, pe in a peculiar way. And uh, I haven't spoken about this in public uh, before, but I want to now. Uh, hmm. I had a spontaneous opening, a spiritual opening, under very uh, peculiar circumstances. I was uh, an activist against the uh, Vietnam War. I was a member of the uh, resistance to the Vietnam War draft. And uh, it was very hazardous at that time. This is in uh, Manhattan in uh, New York City. And uh, I'm about 20. And in comes the war. And the... Uh, the uh, refusers, the ones who, who said, uh, you know, oh hell, I won't go. Uh, I was so impressed with them because the conditions, the stakes are very high. I mean, you could be imprisoned pretty easily at that time, military prison. So I joined in, uh, you know, doing the best I could, and it was um, my self-appointed job to shepherd war resistors who, you know, these kids were 18, they just got out of high school, and they drafted. See, we couldn't stop the war, but I was convinced we could stop the draft. And you haven't heard one word about the draft in recent years. So we succeeded. Mm. But uh, it, it was uh, dicey, because if you were apprehended without uh, proper military uh, recruitment papers, then you could be imprisoned. And these were young men, usually uh, underclass, usually uh, just high school educated, and here they are at 18 and they're in trouble. So we designed, uh, I was living in a, um, in a church at that time. I was working and living in a church setting. And uh, we had quite a little underground movement to shepherd these uh, guys over the Canadian border where uh, it was very easy. The Canadians were hospitable. And if you could just get across the border, they would protect you. 
They were not involved in the hmm. war. So the uh, the big thing was, you know, like uh, I get a job assigned to me. This is all very, very. I didn't even know who was assigning me. It was all very um, protected. You didn't know who you were dealing with. But I had made this connection through the church with uh, this caravan of young men trying to get across to Canada, all across that huge border between the two countries. So uh, we had uh, a method of shepherding them through uh, having a driver who was one of them and uh, kind of falsified papers to get through the checkpoints. And we'd been pretty successful up to a point until the American side caught on and they started to really investigate exactly who was going over the border. There were many, many checkpoints, some of them even empty. You could just, you know, drive through. But that closed down, that, that uh, hospitality closed down. So uh, we had reports, unfortunate reports, of uh, cars with resistors being apprehended on the border and being uh, brought back to America and imprisoned for trying to escape. And I was so pressured by this. I mean, after all, it's my job to get them in the car. They stay overnight in the church basement. They get into the car and they go. But it was so uh, oppressive to me that I was sending people into jail. So, you know, that's how I hmm. registered it. The uh, the up upshot of it was that uh, I got myself pinned in my living room chair, and uh, it was a big old brown kind of fuzzy chair, and I just, I went into a state of mind that was, I thought, anxiety-driven, and that was true. It was anxiety-driven that I had my first spiritual opening. But wow. I got into the state, and uh, the, the uh, it was it was like being plummeted into a state of complete certainty. Internally, this was real to me, this state of certainty and reality, and uh, I got a vision. I'm, I'm highly visual, and so that was not unusual. Dreams and, uh, you know, visual imagination are very uh, embedded in me. So I had a vision, you might say, in my chair, nobody was there, of the border passing that our car was supposed to go through. And it was so certain this is not it. Don't go through that passage point. So in my desperation, I called up the, uh, the checker and said, look, I, I can't get, I can't in good conscience let these guys, you know, four in a car, let these guys go through that particular checkpoint that I've been assigned. It's going to be busted. And uh, somehow I convinced him, and so he moved the checkpoint to, you know, one that we, you know, rarely used. The vision itself was of me looking at uh, a church steeple across the border from Canada. I could see it from the American side. So I knew the checkpoint, and I knew that that was my checkpoint uh, with great certainty in this vision. And uh, that, that, that it would be uh, dangerous to, to proceed. So, lo and behold, they sent, you know, another car through the original checkpoint where you could see the church across the border, and that was busted. And uh, the kids were taken to prison. But my guys got through in the new checkpoint that I had selected. And the certainty, you know, of that I, I didn't forget it ever. I still can remember it. And that was the opening into a form of intuition that I've followed ever since. Uh, I don't think I have to say more about that, but the whole pursuit of my uh, spiritual undertaking for many years has been to return to the place where that initiation took place. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And so, was it somehow rooted in this gift that, that you came to understand or were introduced to, to the Enneagram? Well, once you've gotten over the, the hurdle of um, people's understanding, remember this is ancient history time, you know, there was no church uh, that would really accept the idea of uh, this form of uh, intuition being a 
a spiritual reality, something to be cultivated rather than rejected. Uh, you know, secondly, there was just an alarming absence of uh, any kind of, of uh, interest, actually, in for formulating a, a new way of working with yourself. There was no Zen center. There was no, you know, a yoga studio sitting down on the corner of your, ha of your uh, street. There, there was nothing. There was just yourself. And I went to the, uh, to the local uh, Catholic church with this, and uh, the, uh, the person who was hearing my confession, because actually this was breaking the law, you know, just was uh, unnerved by what I had said. And, you know, well, here, here's your five Hail Marys, essentially go away. You know, he probably thought I was deranged. So there wasn't much help in, you know, any of these usual sectors. And uh, so I was alone with it, and uh, I determined that I would understand the placements of attention that I went into when that received experience occurred. I knew it was a received experience. Mm. I knew it was, had to do something with spiritual concentration. Now, you don't hear much about concentration in the lexicon of spiritual training these days. It's mostly about mindfulness, presence, and emptying, which is excellent for uh, understanding how your ego structure is uh, constructed and being able to observe, to internally witness when you start to go on automatic, when, you know, the three is starting to think about their, you know, their next job and immersed and not in the present moment re of real time, but in this highly focused inner imagination of the next big win. Just as an example. Now, the three, if you use it as an example, could witness internally, I'm about to go into this recurring pattern that I'm hypnotized by, that's altogether conditioned, it is not freely chosen, and there's something I can do about this. And you see, this was the side effect, the spiritual benefit that I got from all of this, is that when I started to get anxiety prone as a six, when I started to imagine the worst, now, remember, I had imagined the worst, but it had information in it. A church steeple across the border between two countries that were in basic agreement, but one had a draft, one country, and the other didn't. I, I, I just can still go back into, I train myself to go back into the, <clears throat> the remembrance of that state, that it happened to me through my despair and my concentration. And the only icon that I know in the, in the Christian sector is John of the Cross, who was in the dark night of his soul. He had been apprehended by his own, you know, his own uh, uh, order. You know, they didn't like him because he was such a popular confessor. confessor. And so they, had, they wanted to get rid of him. And so they trumped up something and they got him in a prison cell. And in the dark night of the soul, you know, he's, God is not in my thoughts, not in my emotions, not even in my sensations. He had been badly abused by his own order. So he's sitting in the cell and he transcended that. The pain went away, the worry went away, and all that was left was a deep receptivity to whatever appears. That's the ticket. A deep internal state of mind that is receptive entirely, that is present when everything else goes away, thoughts, emotions, sensations, the whole stack of the Enneagram structure, whatever your type, goes into the background. And in the foreground, you are deeply receptive. Now, that is now called, according to, you know, the followers of the John method of emptying practice, it's called, you know, a deep emptiness, receptivity. But that's not the whole picture. Because within the receptivity, you receive without knowing what's ever going to show up before it appears. In my case, because I'm so visually prone, a head type, you receive a direct knowing, like in a dream, which everyone has had. And then you wake up and you remember. So those are the two states. You voluntarily relax, resistance, empty. That's the practice of presence. 
and then you focus on one thing only. You cannot allow the mind to go from past to future as it always does. An extended present time moment of emptiness. And within that, you can stabilize one thing only. Because that one thing, if you are focusing on how to get a resistor's car through a border crossing, if you focus on one thing only and can stabilize it, now we're in the concentration department, which is the affirmative path. Teresa of Avila is a big proponent of that. You can stabilize. You can concentrate. You can allow yourself to dream. This is the dream mechanism that is focused in its way. It's a visualization part of the brain focused on a single topic, question, and when you stay with it long enough, you return again and again to the one focus of attention, the one concentration point. And pretty soon, it becomes real to you. It must be real to the beholder. The beholder is not your eye, eye, eyeballs. The beholder is called the inner observer, or in the Christian sector, witnessing consciousness. Everyone is born with this capacity, but it lies dormant. It lies dormant, and uh, frankly, the prayer methods that we follow today don't, don't do a whole lot to enhance witnessing consciousness. So, Helen, when you were, were younger and, and all of this was, was coming to you, did you have guides or, or teachers or mentors who could help you understand the, the, the gift that you were receiving? Not in New York City. Not one. So, I uh, emigrated. <laughs> Remember, this is the late 60s, early 70s, and so the flower power uh, phase was upon us, and I, f I had graduated with a master's degree, so <clears throat> I knew that in, in uh, the West Coast, in California, I could teach in a school, in a university, with a master's degree in psychology. So I waited until I graduated, and then I uh, went directly to uh, California, and it was the best thing I could have done. I mean, it was so slowed down in California in comparison to the speed up of Manhattan that, you know, I felt like I could have read a book between the lines of a conversation, you know, like where is everybody's uh, pressuring, you know, to get their, their little bit of information across? Why, why, why is a conversation so slow and you have time to think about what you're actually conversing about? And, you know, this isn't, usual for me. I, I remember that. I had to slow down to be in California. But it was a great thing because mm. out here, there was a, a whole um, movement in the uh, churches, mostly churches that were not very orthodox, The those that had, you know, method for discerning spirits or m moving into those phrases. I had two fabulous mentors. Two fabulous mentors. One was a well-known psychic, Anne Armstrong, and uh, she g gave me more than I ever than I ever deserved. She was a. <clears throat> I thought she was seeing pi pictures, you know, the way I was, and trying to train myself to get stability of concentration on a single point of concentration point. You know, I I just uh, I just knew that was the way. And she made a tape, this is back in uh, early cassette days, I still have the tape, the cassette. She gave me an astounding set of uh, her impressions that were spot on about two or three questions that I asked, one of which was, how can I return to that state of mind that I was in in the old brown chair back in Manhattan? How can I, how can I work with this? And uh, what she gave me was example. And what did she say? What, what did she say that, that was a path of, of how you could work with it? She gave me a wonderful, a wonderful reading session that was recorded. And she would give the tape, the recording, to the client as they left the door. I had uh, met her through a friend who had had a reading. I listened to the reading, and it was uh, very, uh, very clear about uh, whatever questions were asked. She had answers, but they came from inside of herself from her intuition. She had a, a, an astonishing level of natural intuition. And I found that that was not so rare out here in California with the spiritualist churches. 
they're usually centered around somebody who has some gift of the spirit. But Anne was a, a free thinker, and she was uh, not psychologically trained, and she just started to do this, and she had a huge following, and uh, I have the tape. So I played this tape for the uh, people in the resistance office where I had landed and was working, and uh, most of them discounted it. But two or three were astonished, and they went and had their own readings, and they had a similar experience. So I knew it was possible to recreate the state of mind in which you get a received answer to a focus of attention. That was all I knew at the beginning. But I kept going deeper into the state, and Anne became a mentor to me. And she kept saying on the tape, I see this, I see that. So I thought she was visual, and on the contrary, she never saw a thing. It was all from a different gift of the Spirit that was the direct perception of an answer that was received, yes, but it had no pictures attached to it. So that got me very interested in what different kinds of uh, intuitive states, you know, are available out there. She did a different tour de force than the one that I eventually built. How could these so different ways of perceiving come to a similar level of experience. So that became uh, the fuel for entering the Enneagram. It was like, what are the barriers to different kinds of received experience? Is it type-related? And uh, I think there is a type orientation that relates body-based clairsentience from emotional resonance, psychic resonance, uh, from the visions, focused, Im focused imagination impressions that I was used to. What do you think that is? Why, why do you think that's the case? I think there is an orientation. But Anne turned out to be a six when I learned the Enneagram and she identified herself. Now here are two sixes. One is uh, receiving impressions in, in uh, direct knowing without any intervening images, and I'm all about focusing and stabilizing images. So that was the uh, entrance for me into the Enneagram. What are the barriers to received spiritual experience? Enneagram map makers will continue in a moment. In Chris's book, The Enneagram of Belonging, you'll discover that knowing ourselves doesn't necessarily mean we accept ourselves. Most of us tend to curate the personality of our type, leading with the traits we perceive as positive and sidelining the traits that cause us shame. But what if it all belonged? Rather than furthering our own fragmentation, what if we dared to make peace with the whole of who we are with bold compassion? The Enneagram of Belonging is your guide to this essential journey. Get your copy today, wherever books are sold. And so it sounds like you showed up in California right on time. Oh, and oh, it almost seems like mm -hmm. energetically something was happening there back then where where maybe the Enneagram was, was beginning to, to tease us or, or, or sort of come out of hiding. Can, can you talk a little bit about your, your first impressions of it or, or, or how... It actually found you. I, I know that's funny language to say, but you know, now in my in uh, my years of eighty two, I am totally convinced that this was guided. There are too many uh, events that just happened that I followed. You know, just too many of them, and I think that uh, when you get to be, uh, you know, willing to be receptive to you know what's happening in the air, now. Um, you know, I wanted to I wanted to read you a uh, a little cut from I know you work with Richard Rohr and uh, it, it's very interesting this uh, little phrase. He's this is from his book uh, uh, The Enneagram a Christian Perspective. It's with Andreas Ebert, who is also uh, known to me and a very fine man. And uh, I, I'm reading it. He gave me this book and I didn't know why. And then as I read through it, he's talking 
about fruits of the spirit, uh, according to the different types. And uh, I, I'm not trying to brag by you know reading you this. I don't want to offend anybody, but uh, this is what he he wrote. A further gift of many sixes is their well-developed sense for what is, quote, in the air, unquote. The great Enneagram specialist Helen Palmer is a six. She has told me that she never would have gotten her therapeutic talent. In other words, being able to give, uh, uh, give medicine, you might say, or to give a course of action, or to give a, a prayer method, or to give something, a therapeutic talent to uh, the clients that were coming. I had a full practice within a year and a half. And uh, her power of empathy, if she hadn't been a six, therapeutic talent and powers of empathy are attributed, according to Rohr, to uh, a six orientation. All her life, she wondered why she constantly felt threatened and searched for explanation for these fears. This impulse, she said, drove me to enter into myself and explore all those energies that threaten me. And that's the clue. You're not going to avoid the energetic experience of your passion and how it runs you. And you can't be afraid of that. Because of course it passes as soon as you come out of your state of concentration. But then you know and you can recognize more easily with the received experience, you can recognize when that particular pattern that bugs you as a three, a six, a nine, as a whatever you are, that particular pattern is showing up on the screen. Now, what's the screen? It's the witnessing ability that we're born with that is not developed. You don't have a practice for observing the contents of your own resistance to deeper receptivity, which is where you want to go. This impulse drove me to enter into myself and explore all those energies that are threatening. Helen is one of the greatest psychologists alive because I use my intuition. Yes, I'm a trained psychologist and, and taught for years in a university, diagnosis, assessment, treatment strategies, but I also very secretly was taking certain students and saying, you know, if you went into a state while you were doing, you know, your, your uh, counseling session, if you just got off thinking about what to do and became receptive to what came to you as the client is speaking, you know, you might get a whole lot further, a whole lot faster. Helen grasps the energies that issue from other people in such an immediate and uncanny way that in earlier days, now listen on, she would have been called a witch or clairvoyant. How did that make you feel when you read that line? I, I broke it into tears when I read it in the book. She would have been called a witch or clairvoyant because the time was not accepting this kind of witchery. And in fact, uh, you know, I had uh, quite a bit of difficulty with people, uh, you know, who uh, in, you know, got, the, got the impression that I was doing some sort of voodoo or witchcraft in the sessions that I had with clients. I was doing psychotherapy, but I was doing it from a different state of mind. I could go in and out quite easily by that time. But the, uh, the outcome of this is uh, kind of astonishing because the, the world, even in open-minded California, wasn't quite ready for witches and clairvoyance. And there was a great deal uh, when... Uh, uh, skipping ahead many, many years, when the first Enneagram conference was put together, the first IEA, or the International Enneagram Association Conference, was held here in California. And by that time, I had about 30 years of working with a Stanford professor in the School of Medicine teaching psychiatry, very popular with the students and very unpopular with uh, the administration of Stanford. But uh, David Daniels and I uh, put together a training around the receptive state of mind. Can you talk about how you met Dr. Daniels? We had met in an interesting way. He came to a class that I was teaching, and uh, he left and said, you know, the, I have had these experiences. Can you help me get them deeper? He didn't flinch for a minute. And he used his influence against quite a lot of opposition 
at Stanford to put up in, I th yeah, it was 1994, just after the, the second book of mine came out. But in 1994, here we are in Stanford Auditorium. It holds a thousand people. You know, and I thought, we're going to hold a, a, a meeting here. It's going to have, you know, 30 people in the front row. What are you doing, David? But he had received the message that this was his work that he wanted to bring in more of a receptive attitude into, into the teaching of psychiatry and, and make this uh, an acceptable part of, of the training of, of, of psychologists and psychiatrists instead of taboo in the you know, outfield, something to be rejected. And alone, he convinced enough people at Stanford to put this thing on. So we had to raise the money. We fronted the money to hire the uh, auditorium, which would have been lost. It would not be refunded. But David was dedicated, and we put out the word as best we could to the kind of mm, not very developed network that we had. And lo and behold, David was right. We had an astonishing 1,200 participants. I can't believe that, actually. They were standing in the back of the auditorium who wanted to hear about the, the type structure, this is mostly David's contribution to uh, our training in the narrative tradition. That's incredible. Uh, the structure of type and the other ability that we have that isn't used or wasn't used at that time at all in psychotherapy, the ability of a client to be able to go in and witness the arising of the type structure, the habit of anxiety. The habit of overperforming, three. The habit of, you know, kind of not quite being there, being displaced a little, the nine. Those habits are observable through witnessing consciousness. Now, about that, I know, I know a great deal, the witness and what it is. But I didn't at the time. I just had to say, well, I just do this. I just can go, go in and witness or observe. You can imagine how difficult that was. But 1,200 people came, and this will uh, amuse you, uh, Chris, I couldn't imagine where all these people came from because I certainly didn't come from our client lists. So I walked down the, the, uh, the, the main aisle and I asked, you know, several of the people, how did you, how did you hear about this? It was the missionary hotline. What, what's the missionary hotline? <laughs> these people, uh, uh, several, you know, groups of sisters of different orders coming with a translator in order to hear about this, this how do you say, uh, connection between a praying state of mind, receptivity, and the problem set that their, that their sisters were experiencing. All they were trying to do was to get to deeper receptivity, relax the problems that pull them out of receptivity and you get into deeper receptivity. So, so logical. And, and what do you mean by this deeper receptivity? Well, there were many, many uh, groups of uh, both priests and um, student priests and sisters from different places. And they had all heard about it from a source, which is right here sitting in Berkeley, California. The Graduate uh, Theological Seminary was a big training for, for um, uh, clergy who were taking sabbatical training, sabbatical leave. It was, you know, the, the uh, Union Institute the uni the, was a, the kind of spiritual, uh, how can I say it? It, it was uh, unusual that a university would have a whole department dedicated to spiritual activity. So they were the, the Union Theological Center in the University of California location. And they were very interested in prayer. So I had quite a few friends there. And these uh, sabbatical leave students from a variety of sources, Christian and otherwise, not necessarily Christian, came to study advanced methodology or graduate methodology at the uh, Theological Union, and I got to lecture there from time to time. So what they did was to get a, a set of notes together, and in the backpacks of these 
foreign students, those notes went right back in the right language to the right country and made an impression. And a lot of those impressions still remain were built upon because in no way did it abnegate the teachings of prayer, meditation, and how to get deeper. It just added to the package. It's incredible. Mm. So let's back up a little bit, if it's okay. Sure. Can you um, talk a little bit about what the, the, the process was while you were working on your first book? Because I, I, I love that. I mean, I actually love love both your books, but I often sort of introduce your work as the ovarial work for type structure. Can you, well, can I you had, yeah, I remember was, a little bit about... I was the only one in the crew that really had a decent psychological training, <laughs> you know, along with David Daniels. The two of us were saying, you know, like, this is, it's, we got to clean this up, you know, we have to make it congruent with the with healthcare, with psychiatric diagnosis, you know, we have, we have to do something with this because uh, the difficulty with all of this, and it's recurring right now for the, the newcomers to this, uh, it's recurring as uh, anybody can learn, you know, a little bit about the Enneagram and write a book. And that was happening right then. And David came to me and said, Helen, we got to do something about this. We have to establish a credible training that has a lot of psychology in it about, you know, how the human machine works. Uh, we've, got, we've got to do a training because people are up, you know, teaching out of your book, out of the first book. I was so ashamed. I can't tell you, Chris. It was like, oh, my God, I've blown it all just by writing this book for HarperCollins. And by the way, I got horsed into writing that first book. What does that mean? Can you, can you explain that a little bit? I was teaching uh, intuition work, and uh, I had you know, quite a following in the local area f- for the training. And uh, in comes the husband of one of my trainees, uh, who was at that time the se- one of the senior editors in HarperCollins. Now, HarperCollins, you see, here's a gift. Here's something that, you know, <laughs> how did this happen? Uh, HarperCollins is structured to do foreign rights, which a lot of publishers aren't. They're only U.S. And so he, he comes in, and he sits in the back, and he's, you know, kind of, dis, you know, disinterested. And then at the end of it, he, he looks around, and he's impressed by the quality of the questions, the Q&A at the end of the, of the uh, talk. And he came up with uh, my student, and he said, you know, I'd really like you to do a book about this. And I, th- I was horrified, you know, expose this, you know, the secret oral teachings. You know, it was, my, my own mind was not up to it. And he said, well, you know, there's a lot of uh, professional psychologists sitting around in this room. I'll just go to one of them, and they can work from your notes. Oh, no, that's a, a terrible, terrible hustle. I was appalled. I mean, I knew I'd do a better job than, you know, somebody who had just dropped into a class. I knew that. So I was, in my, in my six anxiety, I got so focused to do the best possible job that I could in the first book that I depended heavily, thank God, on the recorded Q&A that I did with the different types. I had quite a collection of uh, statements about, you know, various topics that each of these types is, uh, is concentrated on. And uh, I just went to the tapes, you know, and, and copied out the best, the best ones that I could find. So that was the backbone of the first book. But nobody had done that before. Like, this is what the horse's mouth is telling us. We are getting the the direct source from the statements of the individuals. Now, at that time, not now, but at that time, that was psychologically kind of shaky ground. You're supposed to analyze and draw out through analysis, in other words, thinking, memory, planning, Consciousness, you're supposed to bring that level of consciousness out into the awareness of the client. You're not supposed to get them to empty themselves at certain times. It was really radical for that time, and I took a lot of flack for it. I remember at the uh, first Enneagram conference, which uh, I've spoken about, uh, I thought it was going quite well, and then I'm cruising around at the, at the end of the conference, 
And I pick up a con I pick up several conversations essentially to, okay, this is real. All we have to do is get rid of Palmer, and this is still going on. What? In a new form. I can't believe that. We have to get rid of the person, you know, who's done enough work so that we can see the uh, the situation more clearly than we could before. We won't make you know, gross mistakes anymore. We know what types are and, you know, how you can work with them a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. But we have to get rid of somebody who has, you know, is dedicated to the same path because we want to take over. I'm sorry. It's just the, the threatened egos who, who want to center themselves. So thank you for staying in the game, Helen. You know, we know better. They probably didn't think that. But we can publicize better. And we can sell better, all of that. And this, this is rampant in the Enneagram community today, particularly overseas. Uh, I recently you know, did a, a, an interview with a, a Chinese scholar who came over to, to study with us. And uh, he's telling us that on the internet in uh, mainland, there are over a thousand Enneagram teachers none of whom have had experience with learning more than they could glean themselves out of a book. So that's, that's what we're facing now is a resurgence because so many people have seen the value of knowing your type and knowing you know, the, the difference between yourself and family members and all of this, you know, or, or team, team members. There's many books that are credible and real, and God love you, Chris, you know, just bring out the ones that have some material that they actually know something about and uh, highlight them. That's, that's the way that my colleagues now will not face, we got to get rid of you, you know. So I, I don't want to go into this because I still have emotion about it. Hmm. Yeah. So this is so I love listening to you and and honestly like I love your story and and what I love about your story is that it's an ongoing story that it's evolving that you're you're never the same person from 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 each visit I, I I've made with you um can you talk about your own story of growth and 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 how you're continuing to see inner transformation take place with with something that you've been working with for so long because at a certain point i imagine some of us think well all right i know my type um there's not much left here but in a sense like you you've been saying knowing your type is actually just the very beginning of this well you have to start with knowing your type because then the next step is and you know what what is the type of somebody that I love that I have disagreements with? What is the type of somebody that I'm trying to raise from childhood whom I don't understand fully? It, it, this, you have to be able to, to, to go first. There's a lot of credit to you know, the one who speaks first. And the, the speaking first is, you know, I've been studying myself. You don't even have to mention the word Enneagram. I've been studying myself. I've been reflecting, keyword, upon my own inner condition. And uh, I realize that, you know, you have uh, difficulties with me in some areas. But we have enough love and enough companionship here that we're going to get through this. And I just have to, you know, know what I'm doing to offend you. And you then speak about the patterns that you've been criticized about, and I don't mean to offend you about this. This is my intention. Uh, I, I want you to know my intention in speaking this way or my um, emotional pressure that makes me want to say these things. Uh, I'd like you to forgive that in me, and I'd like you to, uh, you know, just take a couple of deep breaths and you don't say anything or uh, critical about the other guy, period. There is great great blessing to whoever goes first to speak about themselves in a kind of confessional way and it takes a lot of courage and and that takes a lot of vulnerability and usually i would say in the vast majority of cases that is so unusual that somebody else feels honored that they matter enough to you that they're trying that you're trying to get together with how you're offending them 
So there's a compliment involved to the receiver. And I think that that's fair. Let's let that sink in. You know, you, you can't do the whole job because they're going to receive you however they do. And you can't change that. But you can change your attitude of how you describe yourself and a kind of request for help. You know, fill me in here. What am I doing? Uh, there's a, um, a decency about that. So uh, that's the first dif- and most difficult step. So what's, what's, what comes after that? What, what do we do once we've, we've given ourselves over to this first step? The second is that you study up and make, it, make a serious study of how the other person is actually thinking and feeling inside themselves because it's alien to you. You know, we know how to protect ourselves because we're wounded. We know how to, to uh, try to get pleasure out of ourselves. We know the difference between difficulty and pleasure inside of ourselves, but we don't really grasp that the same dynamic is going on in somebody we care about or a situation that has great merit and you want it to go forward. Well, you have to find out how those other people in the going forward part, the group, the community, how they are registering information. Because it isn't like you do. It isn't the same. So once you've got a little bit of that, like, ooh, you know, like I was offending people without realizing it, or, you know, my, the way that I am, I could change that. I could, I could change something about my anxiety as a six. Well, how? See, then you get to method, which is essentially prayer. But psychology has embraced this and added a great deal of information. I wish all of the praying people would just get a little basic psychology. So the important thing is to be able to internalize, to come into yourself. Can you do that? Can the listener do that? Hmm. Can you turn inside? Can you tell the difference between out and in? Come in. Now, can you drop your attention down through your body, your throat, chest? Now, this doesn't seem like it's going to solve anything out there, but oh, yes, it does. Can you relax through your chest? And then you hit that tension point in the solar plexus that we all have, and you let that go. You relax it, and it takes work. You can feel the tension. Breathe into it. Stay internal and breathe into it. Relax into it. And you can recognize. The key word is recognize. It's not think about. It's recognition. Recognition is a spiritual perception. You don't know what's going to show up on the screen before you recognize it. You have received an impression. You have recognized an impression by relaxing resistance to receiving accurate information. Reality, objective reality, can be perceived internally when you're receptive to it. Subjective reality is the thoughts, feelings, sensations machine, which are relaxed once you internalize and let those thoughts, feelings, sensations recede. They're not permanent. They go away all the time. Let them go. So that's a prayer method or meditation practice. Once you're in and down, you're in a whole different zone. And within that emptiness of John of the Cross and the negation, he let go all reactions, conditioned reactions. Now that's something to having been beaten up in a prison cell, but he did. And he relaxed into the receptive state where we're moving right now. Now you'll notice that you're still quite aware. Awareness is separate from the objects of your attention. Awareness in the present moment is key. 
because then you are able to stabilize within that present moment centeredness a question. Now, it's not a thought about question. It's that you know you are concentrating in a different state of mind, a peaceful state of mind. You're concentrating on, without pictures or images or any of that stuff, without sensations, without any reactivity. You just place your attention very gracefully on one thing only. My reaction when I'm in the presence of this person whom I might like and that I seem to be offending because we fight a lot, my reaction, I can feel where it is in the body. Where's the clutch against the life force? You start with the body. Are you tight in the solar plexus? Have you arched your back so that you can't get your life force letting loose? All you want is your life force back, the way it is when you're happy inside. There's a flow of life force. That's the basis of happiness. Well, how about you go into a sad situation and you're happy because you've got your life force back? And you can see far more objectively and you keep your big mouth shut until you are motivated from the inside to say something in response to what the other has said. Let them go first. Let them be the good guy who goes first. And all you do is receive, and I can promise you, if you are receptive, they will tell you the truth as best they can, as much as they can, because there's no opposition energetically on your part. There is no perception of energetic distress coming from you. So they are free to speak from a happier state where they're not threatened. It's like that. Now, you might want to know what this awareness separate from thoughts, feelings, sensations is about. The pure receptivity that is aware. That's spirit. The awareness without overlay, controlling your awareness from the mechanics of thoughts, feelings, sensations. Spirit is the life force, or it's imbued in the life force. It's a consciousness, an awareness that's imbued in the life force. And it feels great. And it brings back Hmm. Brings back my youth, my energetic state. It's used now in hospital settings. Simple hmm. movement in and down and receptive. But on another level, it brings clarity. You can recognize the suffering that the other guy is going through. And you don't get bound into it. You just observe it. Relax it. Let it be. Let them go first. And the outcome of such an exchange is very pleasing to both sides. Hmm. This is great. Appreciate all this, Helen. Um, you know, I, I've had several conversations here for, for this podcast, and, and nearly everybody has, has mentioned you with such fondness and, 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 and admiration and respect. So many of these folks out I've been in conversation with were your students, and, and I think that's actually one of the 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 marks that gives you the credibility of 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 how you're so respected in the larger community that you've made these investments in so many of us, and still you see how everyone has taken that and then expressed it so differently. Can you can you talk a little bit about having kind of been the the godmother for for so many of us and so many of the great teachers out there? Well, I'm still working on my part of the picture, and I hope to be able to, um, I hope to be able to produce a, a new book on spiritual 
areas of the Enneagram that haven't been tapped into yet. The teaching is very deep. Oh my God, that would be amazing. But it's difficult to trace sources. When you have a teaching that has come under so many changes from so many different religious factors, from so many different parts of the world, you know, it, it, it's been, uh, it's not diluted necessarily. It has been adapted to the current situation, which is cognitive emotional. It's not about spiritual receptivity. So I needed, I needed time, and I'm getting time now. My school, uh, the narrative school, is very generous with this. I, I have time now to do certain kinds of research into the origins of the spiritual dimensions of the Enneagram. I mean, it's just, you know, let go and let God so far. But there was a lot of you know, really useful information for students who want to be able to to deepen their receptivity. I do have the mechanics of how to place attention internally. I have that. Placement of attention is critical. Focus of attention is huge. Everything depends on that. To be able to stay in the present moment that has no past, no future, it is only what is occurring now to be able to stay positioned there in a receptive state of mind on one question only. That's my way, but I couldn't find a historical precedent for this, and I, of course I knew that it was there, it just had been kind of jettisoned or thrown away over time, you know, because it, uh, it indeed requires a certain amount of being able to internalize relaxed downward, but did you notice in this small, very small excursion inside of yourself that you stayed aware for the whole time? You didn't blip out. Yes, you could distract, but then you notice that you're distracting. Now, what's this witness thing that you can notice when you're being distracted and when you're going deeper into with complete faith? It is a test of faith to be in a receptive state of mind for a long period of time, focused on one thing only. For example, the prayer of the heart. Forget about discursive thinking of the prayer, the words of the prayer of the heart. Just be in the heart and receptive for a long time, focused on one single impression of a religious nature or pleasing nature to you. Stay with it. The knowing comes from your concentration. It does not come from your conditioned type reality. Now, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but the stability of this is so important, the stability, you know, and on to the next, thought, the next words of the prayer. Forget about it. Stay in the present. Um. Okay, Helen. Well, let me let me just wrap this up really quick by saying thank you so much for your time. You know, the 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 last time I saw you, you actually dragged me out on the dance floor at the IEA's 25th conference and um man, nobody can get me to dance but you. And so uh, thanks for, in a sense, letting that kind of be a metaphor of, of this conversation, but thanks for letting that be a metaphor of, of, of a, the dance that you've created for so many of us by the investments you've made in our lives and, and by what you've done um, to bring this teaching forward. You're, you're really remarkable. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this, this conversation with Helen. I uh, can honestly say I've, I've had very few encounters or exchanges like this in, in my life. Of course, when I'm, I'm with her, there is a, a, a resonance of who she is that comes forward. And I think these are the, the echoes of, of the hard inner work that she has given herself over to. Helen's a, a little hard to find out there. And, and I imagine maybe that's part of her, her type six structure, kind of keeping her, her sight lines open and protected and, and um, you know, keeping a, a little bit of distance between her professional and personal life. But if you're interested in, in learning more about Helen's work, and if you're interested in, in, in keeping up with what she's done, then you can't go wrong by, by picking up her, her books, The Enneagram, Understanding Yourself and Others in Your Life. And you'll see this, that 
all of us in, in one way or another are, are, are simply regurgitating and, and reworking with these ideas that she put out in the world, that we really do stand on her shoulders and that she really has shaped every aspect of, of this space. Her book, The Enneagram and Love and Work, Understanding Your Intimate and Business Relationships is, is also a, a, a crucial and, and key volume to have in your library. So chase a copy of that down. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Enneagram Mapmakers. Special thanks to Ryan O'Neill for the gorgeous, as always, Sleeping At Last music, and the gifted and talented genius that is Corey Pig for producing the show. And lastly, the sweet voice you hear helping at the beginning of the show is my dear friend Edith Moore, all the way from Christchurch, New Zealand.